This past week, Bill Nye released a two-minute video on the topic of evolution, and by the time I had viewed it on Friday, it had already gone viral to the tune of about three million views. Now, if you grew up in the 1990s, or if you had kids who did so, you know Bill Nye as the TV personality, Bill Nye the science guy, but he's much more than just a goofy TV scientist with hair that always stands on end because of the wonders of static electricity. He's actually an Ivy League trained uh, engineer, a student of the famous Carl Sagan, and an inventor for the Boeing Company. And this week, his video made the news because of his stern warnings about the dangers of teaching children a worldview other than naturalistic evolution which I assumed meant the danger of teaching them a worldview that included an element of intelligent design. He argued, it's one thing for you to believe in such a naive worldview, but to pass it on to your kids would be irresponsible parenting. He said this, when you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in naturalistic evolution, it holds everyone back. It explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your worldview becomes crazy and untenable. Holding us back, crazy, untenable. It's exactly the kind of language that fits Jesus' description in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where the Beatitude says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. Now, Bill Nye merely represents the world's general consensus about Christians, and the point isn't to single him out or to single out this particular issue of intelligent design, which of course is only one of many issues where Christians are seen as crazy and holding back progress. Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus teaches his followers how we are to relate to a world that holds us in such low regard. That when you first read the Beatitudes, you might be tempted to think, that we're being called to some sort of a separatistic or even a monastic lifestyle where we put all the distractions of the world uh, aside and we surround ourselves only with people who, like us, are committed to being pure in heart and meek and poor in spirit. But lest we be tempted to isolate ourselves, the Beatitudes quickly transition into this series of metaphors that tell us, by no means are we to withdraw. By no means are we to form an isolated Christian enclave to which the world pays absolutely no attention. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. He says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, our task with this text this morning is fairly simple. We have to first ask, what do these metaphors mean? Why does Jesus use salt and light? Then we ask, what does it look like for me to be salt and light? And then we have the benediction and we all go do it. It's a pretty simple process. And to complete the first step, we need to think about what salt and light were used for in Jesus' 
time. Take salt, for instance, which had no fewer than seven common uses. The Apocrypha lists it as one of the essential elements to human life. Now, when I went to the store this week to get some taco seasoning for a dinner that Julie was making, I purposely got the packet that had the least amount of salt in it because I didn't want to eat all the salt. But of course, in the ancient world, avoiding salt was not one of your normal goals. You wanted salt. It was a substance you used to treat wineskins and to flavor food, just like we do today. But the thing you would have needed the most salt for was the preservation of food, preserving meat uh, in the days before refrigeration. So salt is essential to life, and it prevents spoiling. And so Jesus is saying, Christians, we are essential to the world, and we prevent the world from spoiling, from decay. The next metaphor in our passage is this city up on a hill, which is where strategically most cities, of course, would have been located. Now, what is it about a city on a hill that makes it a significant picture for Jesus? Well, it's because it's impossible to conceal it. It's quite unthinkable that a city up on a hill would ever be hidden. It's obvious to the world. And so, too, Jesus says, as Christians, we should be obvious to the world. Third, Jesus mentions this lamp and a bowl, and he says, picture with me the typical Jewish house. The house of a common family would have had only one room, and in that single room would have stood a single lampstand, and on it, a bowl filled with oil and a wick in it, which when lit would have provided life or provided light to the entire home. And Jesus raises a couple of questions. First, why would you go through the trouble of hiding a lamp when its whole purpose in existing is to be visible? And second, what would happen to that one-room home when its only source of light is hidden? But the family needs the lamp to be visible. And in the same way, Jesus says, our world needs his followers to be visible, lest it be left in total darkness. So those are our three metaphors. Salt, the city up on the hill, and the single light lighting the one-roomed home. And once we understand their significance, the next step then is to say, the important step, what does it look like for me to be salt and light? And to answer that question this morning, we're going to consider three messages that Jesus has for his followers in this text. Three messages that he has for us this morning. And the first is this. You are salt and light. In other words, your job description, like salt and light, is to make things around you better. Your job description is to be an influence in the world. This week, Julie and I saw a travel video on the hill towns of Tuscany, and uh, the farmers out there were making the various products that they're famous for, wine, of course, Uh, but we also saw them uh, making prosciutto, this thinly sliced ham that comes from the a leg or the thigh of the pig. Now, I'm someone who has started to get more serious this summer about grilling, and so I've read a fair amount of articles about meat temperature and raw versus rare and all those kind of things. And so I've become concerned with making sure that meat is both flavorful but also safe to eat. And so when I watch these Tuscan farmers, I get a little squeamish at the thought of eating meat that's been hanging from hooks in someone's barn for nine months. But it's safe, of course, because it's been cured with 
a lot of salt, and the salt slows down the oxidation process and prevents the meat from going rancid. Well, Jesus says, in the same way, we prevent moral decay in the world. We prevent corruption from happening. It may not be a glamorous part of our job description, but one of our jobs is to keep things from going as bad as they might otherwise be. I may have already shared uh, this story of what happened to me at a golf outing uh, last year. It was a bachelor party for a friend from grad school, and one of the men in my foursome was uh, the groom's uncle, and he's this big-talking Texas oil baron type of guy, and uh, before we uh, tee off on the first tee, he says to everyone in the group, he says, I just want to make sure before we get started that none of you all in this group are too religious because I plan on doing a lot of cursing during the next 18 holes. And the scene that followed was humorous as he slowly discovered that his nephew, my friend, had intentionally placed him in a group with an evangelical pastor, me. But his behavior for the rest of the day, it changed, not because I asked him to, I didn't really care, but just because I was there. Now, the decay and the brokenness in our world are obviously much more serious and significant than a few bad words on the golf course. But the point is, we have all been called through our very presence to slow down that decay. Well, how do we do that? What is it that makes salt and light so effective? Well, it's the fact that they provide a contrast to their surroundings, right? Salt is effective only insofar as it has its distinct saltiness. And light is effective because it's an utter contrast to the surrounding darkness. And in the same way, our power to influence the world lies precisely in our difference from it. We can be an influence by being distinctive. Of course, most of us would rather not be distinct. We would rather blend in and compromise. But Jesus said, if you're no longer distinctive, you will no longer be a blessing to the world. It's the fact that you're different that gives you the power of salt and the power of light. So Jesus' first message to us is that we are salt and light. We make things better, and we do that by being distinct. His second message to us is that we are salt and light. Not you could be, or you should try to act like salt and light, but you are. He's making a statement, not a promise. Perhaps you've been to the grocery store and spent several minutes trying to find the expiration date on some package you know, of a dairy product that you know you're going to get home and find out that it's spoiled. And you look you know, on the cap, and you look on the bottom, and you find you know, some combination of letters and numbers that you're sure means something to somebody, but you can't decipher them, and so you have no idea if this thing is good or not. Well, salt is one product at the store where you shouldn't waste your time looking for an expiration date. Because as long as it's stored properly, it doesn't change. It's a chemical compound. It's sodium chloride. And Jesus says, you are salt. You have no expiration date. Because you're my disciples, you're going to have an effect on the world, and that is not going to change. But if that's true, then why does Jesus say, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? How can salt possibly lose 
its saltiness. Isn't that a contradiction in terms like water losing its wetness or something like that? Well, it helps to understand that in the ancient world, salt was seldom pure sodium chloride. As you can imagine, the Jews at the time got most of their salt from the Dead Sea, from the Salt Sea. And I've seen pictures of many of you this summer floating around in the Dead Sea. And if you've been there, you know that the mineral content of the sea is more complex than just pure sodium chloride. In fact, the salt in most of our oceans is made up of about 97% sodium chloride, but the so-called salt in the Salt Sea is actually less than 20% sodium chloride. It's mixed with magnesium and calcium and potassium and all the other things our breakfast cereals are fortified with. But because salt is mixed with those other minerals, it's possible to imagine a scenario where the pure salt would be washed away and all that would be left would be this, uh, this useless residue. And that's what Jesus says. About this residue, he says, it is no longer good for anything. It might as well get thrown out and trampled. Which is a pretty hard message for us to receive. If you claim to be a disciple, but you aren't living like one, you are worth about as much as tasteless salt or invisible light. In other words, you're not worth anything at all. It's a challenge for us to step up and be real Christians. Given who we are, preserving the world from corruption should be inevitable. Given who we are, giving light should be inevitable. Given who we are, being distinct is inevitable. It's not an option. It's a part of who we are as disciples. Third, Jesus' final message for us in this passage is that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So it's not you are the salt, period. It's you are the salt of the earth. You have been called to a specific sphere of influence that God wants you to be in. Jesus wants people to notice you. It's actually a part of his strategy. Now when Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds, you may immediately think, well, this is very unusual because I'm used to reading about how I'm not supposed to be like a Pharisee and no matter what you do, make sure no one notices you, do all your good works in secret. But here he seems to be saying, make sure everyone sees what you're doing. But there is a clear difference. Here, the goal is that the light would shine, not that you would shine. Of course, the light is ultimately Jesus Christ himself, the one who we are merely reflectors of and pointers to. He says, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So it's one thing to do good works publicly for your own honor, but it's a completely different thing to do them publicly for God's honor. And often, these good works are done very quietly, like salt, which works best when you really don't even know it's there. On Monday, Alex Chu, our missions pastor at Christ Church, was absent from our weekly staff meeting up in Lake Forest. And he was absent because he was attending the funeral of a friend. His friend uh, was 35 years old when she died. And a time ago, she had found out that she was pregnant. But shortly after finding out that news, she found out that she had some sort of a serious disease, which under normal circumstances would have been treatable except that, in her case, the treatment would have been harmful to the unborn baby. 
so she made the decision to postpone treatment for the nine months during her pregnancy. Except it turned out by that time it was too late. And the baby is healthy and doing well, but mom didn't make it. It was a private decision, but it was effective quietly like salt. And her story has the potential to be a positive witness for Christ. You might also think of the example of Rick Santorum, who spoke at the convention this week. You may know that uh, a few years ago his wife gave birth to a stillborn baby boy, and they made the decision to bring the boy back to their home so that their other kids could see that he was a real person and that they would know that from that point on he was to be considered a part of their family, even though he had died. But the Santorums were widely criticized for being disturbed, and uh, one well-known cable news commentator said that they were a crazy family. It's the exact same accusation that we heard earlier this week from Bill Nye. The world says, we are crazy and dispensable, but Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the bearers of truth and wisdom. The world says, you are holding back progress, but Jesus says, you're holding back decay. You are the salt of the earth. One of the ironies of the Sermon on the Mount is that the very people back in verse 11 who are insulting you and saying all kinds of evil things against you are now, two verses later, the people who were supposed to be salt and light, the people we're supposed to be influencing. The goal is that those same people would praise our Father in heaven. If I had the opportunity to ask Bill Nye one question in response to his video this week, I wouldn't ask him about uh, the age of the earth or fossils or the other things he spoke about. I would ask, to what extent does your worldview explain your own life experiences? You see, Nye was married a few years ago, strangely by Pastor Rick Warren, uh, and the marriage lasted all of seven weeks. But the relationship continued to last for another three years, three years of court battles over restraining orders and lawsuits and bizarre allegations that his ex-wife had doused his lawn with vegetation killer and killed everything. And I would say, your naturalistic worldview may give significance to the way you understand the fossil record, but does it account for the pain and the brokenness you've experienced in your own life? You see, in a world of seven-week marriages, we are called to fight that decay through our lives, through our own marriages, to be the salt of the earth. In a world of trusting in mere naturalism, we are called to trust in supernaturalism, to point to Jesus, the light of the world. We're called to say to a friend or to a neighbor or even to Bill Nye, there's a purpose for your life. There's a purpose for even the suffering that you've experienced. And there's a God who cares about you deeply. And we know he cares about us because he cares enough to send his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation that we're giving during these next few weeks as we begin our study on the life of Christ. Perhaps you've been salt or light to someone and you don't even know it. Well, now is the time to extend that invitation to take the next step and say, I want to point people toward the source of my saltiness and I want to point people 
toward the source of our light. And I hope that each of you will join us now together as we make a community goal of doing that during these next two months as we study the life of Christ together. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for giving us this privilege of uh, being an influence in the world, even though it's a burden that many of us would at times rather not bear. We pray that you would strengthen us through your Holy Spirit to be exactly the people that you've called us to, that uh, others around us would not notice us so much, but that they would notice the one for whom we live each moment of the day for, uh, for you and for your son who died for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond.